name's Justin Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're talking about David Dakota, a filmmaker that many people who are regular listeners to this show may be shocked we've never done before. He's never far from our minds. He is the director of such films as Creepazoids, Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama, Nightmare Sisters, Beach Babes from Beyond, Test Tube Teens from the year 2000, and of course... A talking cat? Which is probably the thing that made him the most famous in the sense of people were talking about his movie because it became a bad movie classic. Even though that the other films that he made, I believe, that year, like An Easter Puppy, did not get the same attention that A Talking Cat did. Didn't he have a Halloween horse as well? Well, A Talking Cat was a perfect confluence of factors, right? I mean, I think... More than anything, it was the special effects of the cat talking. Oh my god, yes. Coupled with the fact that the cat was voiced by Eric Roberts. David Dakota just showed up and he like forgot his microphone, so he used the microphone on whatever camera he was holding in his hands. Uh, more on that movie later, but David Dakota has 176 directing credits on IMDb as of today. And I've only seen a small fraction of those movies. I've only liked a smaller fraction, but uh, nevertheless, I love David Dakota. I think you feel the same. I love David Dakota. And if people are wondering, wait, if you say you don't like most of his movies, then why do you love him so much? I think that it all started when I listened to the commentary for a little movie called Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. It was a David Dakota film that he made for Full Moon, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more because he was one of the main directors there. And he and C. Courtney Joyner on that commentary, they they are so funny, so happy to be talking about a movie they made, pointing out how they cast all of these like weathered character actors who had not acted in a while. And from then on, I'm like, wow, I love listening to this guy talk. So I'm going to check out more of his stuff, even if it means picking up a Blu-ray of a movie I know I don't like, just to hear David Dakota wax about, you know, his experiences making it. Yeah, I first became aware of David Dakota. Well, I first became aware of his work when I saw the trailer for Beach Babes from Beyond, which had boobs in it. Stallone. <laughs> That's right. So Beach Babes from Beyond, for those who don't know, stars Joe Estevez, Don Swayze, Joey Travolta, Jackie Stallone. Swayze, Travolta, Stallone, as the cover shows. Uh, and it also stars Burt Ward, who, uh, you know, is <laughs> n- nobody's sibling, but he's in it too. And I remember the trailer had boobs in it, and I was at just the right age to be uh, so excited by that when I saw that trailer. But I first became aware of David Dakota as a person, as a personality, because he did a bunch of DVD commentaries for Ed Wood movies. That's right, on the Box of Wood DVD set. Yeah, so I mean, this is a guy who's after my own heart, and when you look at David Dakota's career, uh, you know, he started in the movie industry in the early 1980s, directed his first movie in 1984, and since then he has weathered every change in the exploitation direct-to-video marketplace. We should talk that he started at the bottom directing pornography. He directed pornography, and before he did that, he was a production assistant for Roger Corman in the early 1980s. He was working alongside James Cameron and the likes at uh, the New World Pictures lot in like 1980 when he was 18 years old. He's credited as being a uh, working craft services on Escape from New York, Tough Turf, and he was also a PA on the Vim Vendors film, The State of Things, because Roger Corman 
has a cameo in that picture. His best known movies, aside from A Talking Cat, are a lot of the direct-to-video movies that he made in the late 80s and early 90s, because the marketplace was such that there were all these new video stores, and they had so many acres of shelves to fill, and there were only so many people who were making direct-to-video movies. So uh, you went to the video store, and there'd be like, 25 copies of Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama. And if you make a movie with a title like that at the right time, your place in film history is secure. Well, the story goes that David, he made a film that like Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama, it's like Dream Maniac, Dream Amaniac. <laughs> like, it's one of those real tongue twisters. And he shot it himself and he sold it to Wizard Video as a video premiere. And it made a bunch of money. And from there, he became kind of like Charles Band's main go-to guy. That if there was any job that seemed impossible, that could only be done in a couple of days, you gave it to David and he would be able to turn it around and have something ready to go. This is what's important to know about David Decoto in terms of what his talents were and why he was able to and continues to be able to flourish for so long against every change in the industry as things have gotten harder and harder and less hospitable to filmmakers like him as the marketplace has just been glutted with more and more content. He can make a presentable product in a very short amount of time for a very small amount of money. And as we'll talk about, you know, in his last decade of filmmaking, he decided I'm going to get rid of basically producers, anything that would was weighing me down before. And I'm just going to follow my passions, which are shirtless, hunky men. <laughs> and that's what I'll film. And that's what I'm going to put out onto the market. But that came later because earlier on, he was given what people wanted, which was naked women on screen. And boy, did he do that a lot. Yeah. So I watched two films from his golden period uh, this week. I watched, I think, his second mainstream film, Creepazoids from 1987. You've seen that oh, one, right? I'm sorry, Will. Yeah, you told me you were watching it, and I was like, good luck to you! Yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't sure whether I should watch something from later on or earlier on, and I thought... Uh, the, you know, that's the iconic period of his career. I felt I should just like better freshen myself up on it a bit. It's got an amazing poster. That's what I think most people remember about Amazing it. poster. It's also 72 minutes long, which, you know, if you're on Tubi and that is where you find the David Dakota movies, that's the one I'm going to watch because it's 72 minutes. I'll just briefly say Creepazoids is a ripoff of Alien. It mostly takes place in a or it's set in a warehouse or it's shot in a warehouse. Kind of follows the beat of the alien plot but you know very boring oh so dull minimal forward momentum Linnea Quigley the great scream queen who's in so many of his movies is in it and 15 minutes in she says I'm gonna take a shower and I'm like of course you are because you you take a shower in every movie you've ever been in and I, I think that's terrific so there's that and there's also some funny like rubbery gore effects yeah at the end there's like an evil baby monster that shows up and starts attacking people you can get fun rubbery gore effects anywhere though the thing is that Dave David Dakota, like, he never seemed interested in the gore punchline of his films. And I think that kind of hurts it if you're looking for those conventional thrills. Because the other famous movie that he made, Sorority Babes, the year after Creepazoids, like, it seems to be missing that gory punch that you would expect from a film like yeah, that. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure this was my second time seeing Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama from 1988. You know, I wish I liked it more. What can I say? The plot is about a, a sorority is initiating a bunch of 
uh, new students and uh-oh, some boys get involved and it ends with them in a bowling alley where they release a little imp who uh, loves to tell puns and jokes and also grants evil wishes. Yeah, that imp, he's a little puppet and he's a bit of a Chucky type, you know? He's a bit of a rascal. There's a ridiculously long documentary that's just behind the scenes footage on the Blu-ray and you can listen to it with commentary with uh, David Dakota. And he talks about like all the imp was shot in the tiny offices that they had in the corner because <laughs> they just needed the black wall and you could have the little puppet moving because they did not shoot that during the main production of the film. I mean, that's what you want. Forget about the movie. Watch the hour and a half of behind the scenes footage. I would rather spend time on the set of this movie than watch it. I think that David said that after this movie, he decided I will not drink on sets anymore because it makes making the movies <laughs> a little bit too hard. This golden pe- period for David Dakota is not my favorite era of his career. I mean, obviously the movie hit certain beats and they do it with efficiency and I guess it's kind of admirable that he was able to do it so often. Like Sorority Babes I think became very popular not only because it was on VHS shells but he also became an up all night on the USA Network favorite. I just don't sense his heart is in it in these movies. Mm, I know what you mean that it's kind of like all right can I give the goods of what's expected here but it doesn't have that flair that you can see in the ones that he's very involved with. I mean, like I, like I said, Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge is probably his best full moon film, in my opinion, as what he was able to pull off. They had a little bit of a higher budget. They were able to shoot on a back lot to make it look like World War II. You even have actors that you vaguely recognize from other things, like Richard Lynch is in it. So it's all that fun stuff that in Puppet Master 3 just comes together. And I mean, he directed many other Puppet Master films after that, including one that stars Greg Sestero, the guy that would go on to star in The Room. And those movies are not very good, even though that one of them, I think it's Curse of the Puppet Master, that uh, the story goes that the script had to be written really fast, so he just completely stole the structure of the movie that's just a bunch of S's about the man being turned into a snake. I'll tell you folks about his artistic evolution. So throughout the early 90s, he's making these movies one after another, one profitable movie after another. In the middle of all of it, he does a passion project, which I think we should discuss last. But he he makes a passion project in the mid-90s called Leather Jacket Love Story. And that's the first movie that you could definitely call a, a gay, an overtly gay David Dakota movie. However, homoerotic imagery and themes are subtly present ever since Dream Maniac. <laughs> Subtly present. So uh, this is a funny IMDb trivia piece for Dream Maniac, his first mainstream movie. It said, The script contained plenty of male and female nudity. When filming commenced, most of the actresses refused to fulfill the nudity requirements, whereas the actors were all very comfortable with it. As a result, the film contains more male than female nudity. Good. This is very funny to me because... There were, I don't know, 500 direct-to-video schlock movies in the 80s. Uh, it's funny how all those other 500 movies were able to get female nudity, and yet this one... It didn't really matter that much. I mean, he talks about stuff like Nightmare Sisters. The three ladies that star in the picture are topless the entire film. In the script, they were supposed to be bottomless as well. And he was like, eh, I don't want to do that. That's a little too uncomfortable. Let's just have the breasts out, but we don't need to go completely nude. He decided to in- explore a new style, embrace a new style in his exploitation films beginning in the year 2000, when 
when he made a movie called Voodoo Academy, which he said, you know, there was a glut in the marketplace. There were so many TNA action horror movies. What if we made a movie that celebrated the male form? And that's what he did. So a lot of hunks taking off their shirts, showing their abs and walking around in their tidy whities Now, this is funny. I, I interviewed David Dakota once many years ago, and he said that the movie did very well. He sold it to Charles Band of Full Moon Pictures, who hated it, uh, didn't understand I it. I think they cut out like 30 minutes of it as well. Dakota said to Charles Band, no, you don't understand. This is a horror movie for girls. <laughs> See, there are hunky men in it, because most horror movies are for guys with the, with the naked ladies, but this is for girls, which his homoerotic exploitation movies are very peculiar because they often have hunky men, shirtless men, uh, shirtless men in briefs, but... Uh, they're all basically PG-13 movies. Not all of them. Much to my surprise when I watched D.B. Cooper meets Bigfoot. You get some full uh, male nudity in that one during the shower scenes. Here's something else that folks need to know after the turn of the millennium. Again, the direct-to-video marketplace is getting so glutted. So many movies. Digital video has democratized cinema. David Dakota has to start making more and more movies for less and less money just to keep up, just to survive. And uh, something starts to happen after, let's say, the year 2010. He leans more and more into this homoerotic side. And also, there's so little that he's working with that the movies... This is when I really start to like him. The movies start to be almost feel like these free associative writing exercises. They seem to almost come straight out of his brain. I think that, and I'm not 100% certain, but he directed a film called Beastly Boys in 2006, which I've seen described as David Dakota's Jerry. <laughs> and this was his first Rapid Heart Pictures film, and that's his production company. So I think that kind of Dakota style really starts there. And there's some uh, jumping back and forth between production companies. But after a while, after 2010, that's when he really starts to get control completely of these films. And he starts making films like 1313 Wicked Stepmother, 1313 Actor Slash Model, 1313 Boys Crazy. So the 1313 movies, which were all made in like 2012 to 2014 there are 14 of these movies they're all set at a mansion in malibu they're called 1313 i guess that's supposed to be the address of the house but they're actually called that because he figured out that when you searched movies on certain streaming services algorithms would sort it so that titles with numbers would show first so so that was his way of gaming the system and it's also a great way to in these movies just hang out with actors that he liked from who have not acted in forever so yeah the 1313 movies have as little plot as you can have and still qualify as like narrative features. But how many shower sequences did each movie feature? Oh, lots of shower sequences. So this week we watched a movie called 1313 Cougar Cult. It stars three of the great screen queens of the 80s, Linnea Quigley, Brink Stevens, and Michelle Bauer. And they play cougars, both figuratively and literally, who run this mansion, who hire three uh, slightly dorky, but also uh, conveniently very hunky dudes to uh, oversee the place, to be janitors, basically. And the twist is, these three lovely older ladies turn into cougars. And by turn, I mean, there is 
I'm not even joking. A still frame of a cougar clearly grabbed off of Google, just pasted over their face. <laughs> it's 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 really amazing. It, it's hard to convey the experience of the 1313 movies. What we just told you is the plot of the movie. That's, That's it. That's all you get. Uh, most of the movie is these dudes, these hunky dudes, often wearing tidy whities sort of wandering through the mansion. Sometimes they hose themselves off by the pool. Sometimes they take showers. You never see uh, their private parts. You never see their asses. It's not in this one. It's always right above, even though it keeps panning down, (laughs) keeps panning down. So there's like this movie essentially is gay pornography, but like it would be a PG-13 movie. There's it's very wholesome. But also all of these 1313 movies have at least one aging scream queen in them just to add to the sexual confusion hoping that you know people wandering are like oh i like that person they haven't done anything in a long time i should check this out so these movies are just just so like weird and hypnotic and they're all set at the same mansion which was this mansion where many many low budget productions and at least one episode of tim and eric were shot at oh yeah and it's a mansion that is very distinct because it features a car cut in half a big sculpture that has like women's shoes for some reason yeah the the sculpture is a tree trunk with legs with red high-heeled shoes it's it's baffling it it, it's this like bizarre it doesn't look like a real space and it has all these like strange little decoration flourishes in it and they're all set there and the the mansion and everything just adds to the sense that these movies kind of feel like they were created by algorithm. Like you would stumble upon it, and it's like a bunch of keywords are like you know, uh, tidy whities in a mansion, car furniture. Okay, that's one of the top SEO hits. Let's bring her up. A talking cat, which he made at around the same time that he was making these movies, is the movie that really feels like it was made by an algorithm. You know, he was making in addition to all these thirteen thirteen movies, he was making family films under in this- the same place in the same place with many of the same actors like so a talking cat stars uh johnny i forget what his name is but johnny whitaker johnny whitaker who was like a child star in the 60s a famous child star because he was like in a bunch of tv shows he was in a family affair i think that was his big tv show and it also stars christine de bell who was in the the x-rated alice in wonderland from the 70s and also and with our man jackie chan in battle creek brawl in 1980 that's right she's the leading lady in that film and then she retired for 20 years to raise kids she had not acted since 1990 and her rollback was 1313 night of the widow and this is why i really love david dakota because i meant i mentioned her to him and he said oh yeah you know she just wanted to get back into acting and so she sent her resume to a bunch of places and i called her and i said are you christine DeBell? you're you're a you're a star i want you in my movie and she's like you you know who I am? How can you not love David Dakota for for being like that? Well, he's not casting uh, DeBell because he thinks it will lead to more people uh, renting the movie other than me and you. <laughs> like he's doing it because he just wants to talk to her on set and get a chance to work with her. That's what he finds really exciting about it. So then what's also fun about A Talking Cat, in addition to everything else we said, is that it has some like 
twinky young man in it you know Mm -hmm. like in the pool so it's got this it's also got this just this weird like porny homoerotic vibe to it yeah i mean it's all so beautiful and straight from david dakota's head can you imagine being a child and watching this movie what would you make of it yeah and there are just so many like so many strange scenes in it so many scenes that look like again like they were assembled by algorithm i don't know how how better to describe it and he's making this movie at the same time that he's making the 1313 movies and just all sorts of other movies he's making you know something like 15 movies a year maybe even more and they all just they all just blur together they're like this one long waking dream at that point this is a filmography that is jess franco-esque in its uh tapestry and Dakota must be doing this because he just likes being on set, right? Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine him watching the movies after he finishes shooting them. Yeah, and Jess Franco's a great comparison because it's just boiled down to the essentials and it feels like these are... Obviously, Dakota is making movies he thinks he can sell. It's like there's a market for family movies right now. So I'm going to make family movies, but that's all it is. It's just the genre that's selling the genre and certain of the poster art. And so everything else is just coming straight from his brain. And he said that he likes making those rapid heart movies because he can wake up, have an idea for a movie that he wants to make. And then like in a week, he's shooting it and he's done the week after that, a week of posts. And then he's finished. He puts it out into the world. He seemingly has connections that they know what streaming services they could go on, and that's it. He's making enough money in return to continually making it, and it's just a day job like any other day job would be. Now, whenever I check David Dakota's IMDb page, it's always an adventure. You can check every six months and just find out what's happening in the world of exploitation film. What are the what are the movies that low-level distributors are buying right now? He is one of many exploitation directors from the 80s who now have made a bunch of like Hallmark or Hallmark adjacent Christmas movies. Now you say a bunch. Don't you mean like a hundred Hallmark adjacent Christmas movies? Uh, Let's see. There's A Christmas Cruise, My Christmas Grandpa, A Royal Christmas Ball, A Runaway Christmas Bride. Those are all from 2017. Delivering Christmas. And he got into the wrong franchise, the wrong Valentine, the wrong Prince Charming, the wrong Mr. Right, the wrong fiance, the wrong real estate agent. The wrong cheerleader coach, the wrong stepfather, the wrong wedding planner, the wrong house sitter. I'm not even halfway through yet. (laughs) Those are all Vivica A. Fox movies, I think. Yeah, he's best pals with Vivica A. Fox, seemingly. And like even just recently in 2021, he did a pretty big miniseries that starred her called Keeping Up with the Joneses. That was like a Lifetime movie. And it looks like a pretty big budget for this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the poster for it now. And this looks actually legit. Unlike, you know, some some of the other Dakota movies like he's like worked up in the lifetime movie ranks that he seems like a auteur there that he can do whatever he wants but i think we owe it to everyone to talk about some of david dakota's passion projects some of david dakota's one for me movies in 1997 he decided to make an art film he decided to make a movie that was personal to him a gay love story called leather jacket love story this is the only one of his movies that played on the festival circuit the only movie to get an art house release and according to him the only one of his movies to lose money well, i don't know about that but you know let's take his word for it and the film when you hear that it's a one for david dakota you would expect that it'd be like a tortured or heavily dramatic film nope 
it's the kind of hangout movies that were made on the independent scene in the late 90s. And it's just a very matter of fact love story about a young kid who's moved to a different neighborhood of Los Angeles, Silver Lake. And he meets a hunk and they have a 24 hour whirlwind relationship. That's right. It's a twink meets hunk romance, as its poster says. As Variety says on the poster. Uh, The older guy is a little bit damaged. He's into short, disposable relationships. The younger guy is a real puppy dog. You know, he's probably never had a real relationship before. And I like this movie quite a bit. I found it super charming. Oh, yeah. It's like charming and really slight in a good way but also you can tell that david dakota showed up and he's like all right i got a bunch of directorial ideas i'm gonna shoot in multiple locations <laughs> like he's committed to this movie you don't get the sense of the muscles that he built up shooting like little five-day projects because he's right into leather jacket love story and making it work in a way that is not oppressive like you don't feel like he's going, this is my only chance to do this. Well, yeah, it has. It's not urgent at all. It's not weighty at all. It's this very light romantic comedy, and it has a nice sense of mood, a nice sense of atmosphere. It's set in, uh, you know, the gay district of L.A., and a lot of it just takes place in cafes and clubs and poetry readings. It feels very lived in. It's full of colorful characters. The best of them is an older gay poet, a real ham who's played by the great Nicholas Wirth. Uh, Nicholas Wirth is the best. People would know him as the killer and don't answer the phone. That's right. Also as Polly in Darkman, the Sam Raimi film. He's a big, bald guy. Yeah, I mean, he's so fucking good and don't answer the phone. And he's he's great here, too. Because he's always the heavy in movies. And here he's just like a very charming ham, pretty much, <laughs> that is kind of the mentor for the uh, protagonist of the film. One of the things that I liked about Leather Jacket Love Story is that the gay element while it is like very prevalent and in your face, you get the sense of like, oh, this is very lived in as well. There is no other than one scene conflict about these characters' lives. In fact, like the protagonist, his mother and grandmother uh, see him on his way and they're like, all right, remember, use condoms if you do anything. I read the review that the schlock pit wrote and they point out how sort of unusual it is in this time to have a gay movie that's not either like an issue movie like Philadelphia or something that's transgressive like uh, John Waters or uh, Bruce LaBruce or, you know, like a, mo- a movie that just feels like a normal romantic comedy, uh, but it but it's gay and it's very matter of fact about it. There's a conscious feeling of like, all right, let's show all of these details that are part of, you know, these characters everyday lives without making a big deal about it. And even if you watch it now, it's like, oh, yeah, this feels, you know, really fresh. It doesn't feel tired. And it's a real shame that he was not able to make more movies like this. And then he considered eh, it was kind of like, you know, a financial failure and it didn't get the artistic attention. I think he was hoping for. So he kind of just went on his merry way with what he was doing before. Well, it needs to be reclaimed and uh, let's get the ball rolling, folks. It really feels like a company like Altered Innocence. This is the kind of movies they're looking to pick up, remaster, and put out on Blu-ray. And I bet he would do a good commentary. Oh, he would do a great commentary, I'm sure. Now, more recently, he did another sort of one for me, although a less uh, a less obvious one for me than this called Shock'em Dead. You watched that one. Yeah, I was interested in this one because I heard him talk about that this was a movie that that he just really wanted to make, but he wanted to do it correctly. 
uh, because it was a script written by Barry Sandler, who is most famous for writing Crimes of Passion. He did a bunch of Agatha Christie adaptations. And finally, they got the funding by making it an all-black cast movie. And it's a delight because uh, the guy's script is just all one-liners. So even though it is shot in the same mansion that all of these movies are shot in, you can feel the actors are up on their game and the dialogue is going all over the place. It's goofy. It moves fast. And it just shows that like, oh, David Dakota has it in him if he has a script that he believes in. But because he's moving so fast, that doesn't really happen because you get more of the stream of consciousness thing that, Will, you mentioned that you love so much. The question is, like, does David Dakota have another leather jacket love story in him? Has it been too long? Like, does he have those muscles atrophied? You know, maybe, but I would always love to see him try. And even if there isn't, I think just the last 15 years of David Dakota's career has been been really interesting. Like, in the 80s, when he was making Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama, he was doing that kind of movie very professionally. But I genuinely feel like circa 1313 Cougar Cult, circa A Talking Cat, he really hit upon a whole new style. He started making movies that no one else has made, just like really unique objects. And I think we owe him thanks for that. And we said this before, but me and Will did talk to David Dakota for like 10 minutes at a convention and he was a delight. Yes, yes. (laughs) I still have the sheet that he gave me where he made like an old uh, poster as if you were going to a movie theater and it showed all the new movies coming out, but it was all of his movies. And he was just so excited to hand it to us. He's like, I just love doing this, you know, making it look like it's an old grindhouse theater or something like that. And hey, if you want to read a really good interview with him, you should check out our book, The Important Cinema Club Journal. We've been talking kind of around him. What are the ones that we would recommend people to check out if they wanted to, you know, get that Dakota feeling. I think one that doesn't get talked about that much because it's not a horror film, but it is a picture from that kind of like golden period is called I Was a Teenage Sex Mutant or Dr. Alien. And it's him working in like the goofy sex comedy genre. It came out in 1989. It's filled with a bunch of special effects and it's just really fun and goofy. And you can feel that his heart was in it. I believe it was an Empire Pictures film, Charles Band's company. And yeah, that one's a lot of fun. So if people want to check out David Dakota in his like shooting on film period check out dr alien i do recommend people check out nightmare sisters well i gave it one and a half stars on letterbox when i saw it in like 2017 but it's grown in my estimation since then obviously an appallingly poor piece of filmmaking but on the other hand it's just a great hangout movie with your three favorite screen queens all of whom are, are having a lot of and fun there's a whole period too where he did torchlight films for charles band which are all these like um softcore sex movies and that's where you get beach babe from beyond which is like 80 percent sexy yeah i don't i don't love beach babes from beyond to be honest no me neither but looking at his i'm to be here reminded me that he worked with gary graver on leeches in 2003 still shooting on film too you know what else i would recommend is there's a new blu-ray that's out that i think you can find on makeflix.com of a tv series or a mini series that was done in the 80s called shock cinema it's hosted by brink stevens and it's just a couple of episodes of interviews with the people who were making these exploitation films, these direct video exploitation movies in the 80s. So Dakota, Fred Olin Ray, Charles Band, Scott Spiegel, a bunch of other people are interviewed in it. And it's just a great time capsule of what it was like at the time and the way they worked and the way they thought of themselves. And probably more fun to watch than a lot of the movies. So that documentary was actually shot by J.R. Bookwalter. And David Dakota was one of Bookwalter's champions as like a funding source 
for his early films. He produced Robot Ninja, and he infamously produced a bunch of films that David Dakota had found the secret that you could pre-sell movies. So you could sell a movie as like Humanoid from the Abyss, and you'd make some crazy cover art for it, or Kingdom of the Vampires. And he would sell it to video stores, and based on the number of copies he would sell, he would then turn to J.R. Bookwalter and say, all right, now make me a movie that I can then put on this videotape. You have this date to deliver it by because we have this many sales. And what's great about that deal is that the amount of money was paltry to start, and it dropped and dropped and dropped until the last one, I believe, was made for $500 and lasts only an hour long. And it ends with the whole thing falling apart and admitting it's a movie. And they're like, we don't have a climax. All right, roll the credits. So as you can see, 170 odd movies, lots to discover in there. And if you go with our recommendations, and more importantly, if you listen to a director's commentary or see an interview with him, uh, you will become a David Dakota fan for life too. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Eric J., And it goes, thanks for the podcast, Justin and Will. In 2015, the Motion Picture Editors Guild released their list of the 75 best edited films, and 21 of these were edited by women. Probably goes without saying that Thelma Schoonmaker is there a few times. Raging Bull was the Guild's top pick. Marsha Lucas, who, as you mentioned last week's episode, cucked her husband George, is often credited with salvaging Star Wars and post-productions. I could spend all day listing the iconic movies on the list with iconic women editors, but I think that you get the idea. Compared to the boys' club that is the cinema as a whole, women are overrepresented in the editing room. Why is that? Have you read a history of the profession and specifically the women who have excelled in it? The phenomenon seems to span an era and nation. C.C. Bill DeMille's 40-year-long collaborator was Anne Bakkins, European auteur like Tarkovsky, Bergman, Truffaut, and Renoir frequently worked with women editors. By way of comparison, a similar list was composed by the American Society of Cinematographers and not one of the 100 best shots has a female cinematographer. Grim. Well, if I had to take a guess, it's because uh, most of the men are in power and it's very sexist and there aren't many top women cinematographers because they are front-facing and are giving directions, which men bristle at because they don't like having to be bossed around by a woman. And an editor usually works alone or with a couple of assistants in a closed room and it's a closed circuit when it comes to putting films together. I mean, that's... That sounds dumb and obvious, but that's my guess of why that is. Yeah, and I mean, you know, traditionally, we all know that there has been a lot of uh, systemic underrepresentation, systemic sexism in the film industry. Men have traditionally been the decision makers, and they're the ones who decide whose visions are the most valued, which director's visions are the ones that they want to invest in. But editors aren't necessarily uh, pitching their vision. They're not pitching their story ideas. They're there to facilitate a director's vision. So therefore... I guess it's more likely that women would flourish in a below-the-line position like that. And, but it's still a very creative one as well. Certainly. Just, it's not always considered that because it's like, oh, editing, you just put the pictures together, right? But I mean, Anne V. Coates is the one who did that cut in Lawrence of Arabia from the match going off to the sun. That's her doing. Probably the most famous edit of all time. And I love the anecdote that Anne V. Coates, also the mother of Anthony Hickox, director of Waxworks 1 and 2. <laughs> God. You know, this is why we love Justin, folks. The letter continues to speak of editing more broadly. Who are some of your favorite editors? What particular editing tricks do you love or hate? Albert Brooks' character in Modern Romance has to be the best depiction of an editor, right? And when are we getting those Alain René and Nicholas Rogue episodes? Their unique styles, meant to mimic the working of subjective memory, surely deserve your spotlight. Sorry for the long letter. I probably could have condensed it or edited it a bit better. Wink! The balcony is closed. Eric, hey, you don't get to say that. I would have trouble coming up with a favorite editor. I mean, 
I, I suppose the obvious answer would be Thelma Schoonmaker because, like, she's so famous. She's the editor that everyone mentions, and because those Scorsese movies are so well edited. But yeah, like, it's one of those art forms that often, when it's done the best, it's the most subliminal and you don't really notice it. I mean, probably one of the most famous ones is Ralph Rosenblum. Oh, well, sure. He was the one who edited all of those early Woody Allen movies, and he wrote a book called. I think it was called When the Shooting Stops. Yep, that's it. And he is supposedly the one who single-handedly saved Annie Hall from the murder mystery it was shot as. That's right, because Annie Hall was not originally just a love story. It was originally like more than half an hour longer, and it it was more about the Woody character and all of the things that he was thinking about, and it had flashbacks, and the Annie Hall plot of it was just one part of it and he focused on the romance and helped make it uh, the famous movie that it is now. And it's very rare that you'll hear directors admit like, oh yeah, an editor, he saved my bacon. I didn't really have a movie, but it was completely saved in editing. I read somewhere someone say that um, Tom Jones, which is really famous for its kind of like editing stuff was saved by the editor. And that the movie was not shot that way. Oh, I'll tell you who my favorite editor is, or one of them and he's one of your favorite editors too. It's Bob Murawski. Oh, yeah. Bob Murawski, the uh, leader of uh, Grindhouse Films and the editor of Other Side of the Wind, Army of Darkness, and The Hurt Locker, which he won an Academy Award for, I believe. Yeah, we like Bob Murawski because he edited the unfinished films Gone with the Pope by Duke Mitchell and The Other Side of the Wind by Orson Welles, uh, turning them into completed movies. And in the case of The Other Side of the Wind, really replicating and embodying a very complicated and dense editing style that Orson Welles had started before his death. I mean, one of my favorite ever editors is definitely Mary Ann Bernard, which is Steven Soderbergh's pseudonym in all of his movies. <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, it would be tough to do an episode about an editor because you don't know all of the stuff that they did because it should be invisible if they did their job correctly. You know, most people, they're like, oh, there's a lot of cuts in that movie, so it should get best editing, right? It's like, no, that's not how it works. Or, you know, if a movie movie's too long that means it's poorly edited like to talk about Thelma Schoonmacher again you'll notice that in the Irishman in the last half of the movie particularly the whole section around the murder of Jimmy Hoffa the editing slows to a crawl the shots become much longer the pace becomes much slower compared to the rest of the movie and that's an example like the, the way that an editor can help shape the rhythm of a film is just as important as like whether they cut an hour out of it. Yeah, so it's one of those jobs that's almost impossible to know how involved someone was in it, unless they write a tell-all book explaining how they saved the movie. Usually that doesn't happen in case the person wants to keep working. I would be interested in figuring out if there's a way we could do an episode on them, just like on the craft. I think that editing is my favorite thing to do when I shoot stuff, <laughs> but that's just because it's putting the pieces together. It's like a puzzle being put together. But other than that, yeah, I would like to figure out a way and maybe take films that are like famously edited or disasters and to see like how they were saved or just doomed. That'd be interesting. How about, you know, one that would be interesting to talk about is that movie Bohemian Rhapsody, which... Oh. I mean, that's just edited poorly. Well, okay, you say that. But it won the Academy Award. It won the Oscar for Best Editing, even though it looks like it's horrifically edited. And I think famously the reason that it won the Oscar was because the editor salvaged that movie because it was so 
it was so disastrously produced and directed. Well, John Ottman, the editor of that film, was a close collaborator with the director of Bohemian Rhapsody, the mysteriously never mentioned during that Oscar uh, show. And they actually have a long discussion on the commentary track for The Usual Suspects that the ending of that film was saved in editing. That at the end, there's some shots that like don't actually exist in the story. And they did that as pickups because while editing it, they realized there needed to be like one more punch there. Interesting. But yeah, the, there's definitely stuff to be discovered there. I'm adding it to the list. All right, as per usual, you can send us letters on Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Woof, woof. Well, every now and then we like to talk about famous critics on the podcast. And on our Patreon this week, we're talking about the greatest critic of them all. That's right, the video hound. Yes, you may have seen it, uh, I guess, at a bookstore if you wandered by in the video section. The gigantic, almost 2,000 page book, the video hound, video guide, movie guide, DVD guide. It still exists in some form. There's a new edition in 2021, and we talk about it for 20 minutes. That's right. We talk about the hound's legacy and about the various spinoff guides and, you know, the, the proud history of canine film Critics. So check that out on patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And next week, all right, that's enough for the trash wheel. We gotta get classy again. Oh, okay. What's the furthest away we can get from David Dakota? I know. How about Marguerite Duran? Yes, that's right. The famous author turned filmmaker whose films like India Song. She also wrote the script to Hiroshima My Love. And we're gonna be talking about her next week. I'm gonna be honest, she is not a filmmaker I am that familiar with. I I saw the lorry some time ago and it's very difficult and i'm excited to watch it again so until then my name is justin mcclough i'm will sloan thanks for listening we interrupt this program to thank some of our new patreon subscribers who include digum 13 ben varin shane dimitri condigianis john freeman neil mac giola chumgale jack kane aaron pigadesh james cullen michael madonna louis Theodore Hanoush, Peter Brannan, Greg McDonald, Mabuse Cast, Darian Muhammad Abd Al Aziz, Declan Harzum, Kufax Kropotkin, Kazar, Damian Twomey, Truman Meyer, Colin Bucky, Robbie Beck, Russi, Michael Spence, DLB, Kemble McClure, Alex Hardesty, Keenan Ashenfelter, Michael Cannon, and Roman Pesarov. Thank you all for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. And if you listen to this podcast and have not given us a review on Apple Podcast, it would be very much appreciated if you do so. The more reviews we get, the more attention that we get, and it also gives us more chances to get the guests that we would love to interview. So if you haven't done it, get on Apple Podcast, give us a review. It would be very much appreciated. And we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. I've been listening to a podcast. I just started listening to it. I'm on episode two. It's called Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. Oh, no! It was like Rolling Stones, man. Yeah, that's right. It's this, you know, pretty well-produced and very elaborate and slightly pretentious audio documentary about the rise and fall of everybody's favorite illiterate redhead film critic, uh, Harry Knowles. I have to say i've been kind of enjoying it it feels like a podcast that was made for me Ugh, i guess i'm finally gonna have to listen to it i saw someone tweet about it and i was like maybe i will check that out no no <laughs> i mean ain't it cool news being probably the most visited website at a certain period of my life yeah i mean ain't it cool news some of our younger listeners may not even really know what it is but i mean maybe they know about it because we talk about it every like six months <laughs> <laughs> yeah ain't it cool news which is still up there was this early internet 
movie news and commentary website that was proudly, flagrantly unprofessional. And it was presided over by the head geek himself, Harry Knowles, who, you know, really made himself the Mickey Mouse of the website. And, you know, it had Hollywood quivering in its boots. It sounds like you're sarcastic and... He's not like Hollywood was actually interested in what they said or wrote because of a few particular articles that went up. Right. So the website is sometimes credited, I think, wrongly with having sunk the movie Batman and Robin. I mean, the movie is what it is, though. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the word would have got out about Batman and Robin regardless. But apparently back before the Internet, there were very strict embargoes in place for media outlets. But here was a website where somebody went to a test screening of Batman and Robin, and they just wrote a vitriolic review on the internet. And it created a cloud of bad buzz that the movie never recovered from, supposedly, which I mean, I think they overstate the case in that point. But you know, the podcast makes an interesting case that Harry Knowles and that website were actually very influential on the fate of Lord of the Rings, the Peter Jackson trilogy, to the point that Peter Jackson himself even credits Harry Knowles with having helped save his version of Lord of the Rings. And it was a site as well that used to do a marathon, a 24-hour movie marathon, that, oh, I would have loved to go to it, even though it was terribly programmed. That was Graceland for certain certain people. Harry Knowles, it would, it would be at the Alamo Draft House, and Harry Knowles would, like, he'd be like a fucking king at that. It was for his birthday, wasn't it? So he's like... Praise me. People would bring him presents, for God's sake. Prezi. Harry Knowles had a downfall not that long ago, you know, sexual misconduct allegations. Everyone from the site, which by 2017 was frankly, like, running on fumes. But it just goes to show that, like, those sites don't really exist anymore. Like, I was thinking of, like, where's my movie review websites I can visit? I got nothing. And I don't want to have to read someone's Substack every day. It's Substack or Letterboxd. And I guess, like, Twitter? I don't know. Like, there are only like five websites now <laughs> yeah that's the thing the dissolve come back please yeah yeah there's there, there's almost nothing and one of the funny things about ain't it cool news was yeah it had hollywood quivering in its boots but then hollywood found out oh we can we can buy this guy so easily so we, easily <laughs> so you know it, it really did not last very long as a uh, mover and shaker and an influence i mean he had a book that was published by a big uh publisher i had a copy somewhere at some point introduction by mr quentin tarantino himself i remember there used to be a dvd column that harry knowles would would write where he would just like praise anything that was sent to him and what was funny about that was that the talkbacks which were the comment sections were just filled with people being like you fucking piece of shit your dvd column's late where's your dvd column oh yeah well the talkbacks was kind of like a proto reddit oh awful (laughs) just a terrible place i used to read that dvd column too because harry knowles was uh, he would really lay it all out there in his writing. Everything would be the best thing ever. And he would often, you know, be very gross and sexually explicit in his writing when praising something. Oh, how have we not mentioned the infamous Blade 2 review at this point? Look it up, folks. You know what? You love it. Harry Knowles review of Blade 2. Speaking of quivering. That DVD column, I, I, you know, I got to hand it to Harry Knowles. He really had seen a lot of movies. And you'd read that DVD column and didn't matter if it was, you know, a silent film, a foreign film, a classic or a direct-to-video 
movie or a blockbuster. He had kind words and somewhat informed words to say about all five of bags of popcorn. Everyone. Yeah, them. he was like if Greg Turkington actually knew about movies. And some say he's still out there walking the woods. I was just on his Twitter the other day. I couldn't believe it. Oh my he's God. just tweeting like a normal guy. Does he have followers or? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, he was kicked out of the Austin Film Critics Society for, you know, the, the unpleasantness and probably kicked out of a lot of other things, too. I don't think he's accredited media anymore. Oh, my God. He has 50,000 followers. Christ almighty. That's... I, I should, folks, I should have more followers than Harry Knowles at this point. So should Justin. So <laughs> get to work on that. Oh, man. Just looking at the people that follow him. Oh, yeah. Well, these people probably followed him 10 years ago and then just haven't thought about it. Yeah, and they forgot that he was still on there. 